Our reading tonight is from the book of Titus, and it's all of chapter 2. And if you've got the church Bibles, it's on page 1198. So that's Titus chapter 2. And starting at verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Good evening. Oh, sorry, it's a bit loud. Thank you, Rachel, for, for reading for us. Let me lead us in, in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. We thank you that we get to know your will for us through your word. Father, we do pray that you would give us soft hearts to, to receive your word, to accept it, to obey it. And Father, we pray that, um, yeah, by your spirit, we would honor you as we seek to, to, put, to put your word into practice in our lives. And we pray that you'd help me uh, as I preach your word now. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what you make of waiting rooms. I'm not a huge fan of waiting rooms. I appreciate their, their value and what, I appreciate why we need them. But um, I don't enjoy being in a waiting room, usually. So I, was inter- I, was, I find it quite interesting that as I was preparing Titus 2, uh, I, I noticed that Paul compares uh, this world, our living in this world, to, to a waiting room. So he says there in verse 11 of our passage, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, what are you and I doing here on earth? Paul says we are waiting. We are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In short, we are waiting for Jesus to come back. Now, how does, how does this teach us to view the world we live in? I think we should view it as one giant waiting room. We're in the waiting room until Jesus calls our name to come and meet him. Now, why might it be helpful for us as Christians to see ourselves as sitting in a waiting room? A waiting room is not your, it's not your intended final destination. You never go to a waiting room, uh, unless you're maybe accompanying someone, to just stay in the waiting room. Whenever you're in one, you're, you're there because you're waiting for someone or something. And that is why it's called a waiting room. The waiting room is not the main event. It's not the main attraction. We're only there temporarily. So as Christians... To what extent do we actually treat our lives here on earth as though we were sitting in a waiting room? I mean, does, does the way we live our lives in this world suggest that we're actually waiting for something else, something far greater? If we're honest, don't we often behave and live in this world as, as though there were nothing beyond it? How does, how does God's word instruct us to live life in this world as we wait for our appointment with Christ? Have a look at verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Friends, how are we to, to live while we're in this earthly waiting room? We are to be eager to do what is good. This is our first point. Be eager to do what is good. Did you notice in that verse all that Christ has achieved for us through his death? What's he done? He's redeemed us from wickedness. He has purified us 
And he's made us his very own. Why should, we be, why should we be eager to do what is good? One reason is that God has been so good to us. That's a key reason. God has been good to us, so he wants us to do good. But we'll consider another reason uh, later on. Now, this idea of doing what is good is huge in the letter to Titus. Titus, as you can see, is a very small letter. But these words, do what is good, comes up like seven times in this letter. It's a huge theme. So we see it mentioned, for example, in chapter 3, verse 1. So Paul says there, be ready to do whatever is good. And in chapter 3, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And I think this is all connected to what Paul says right at the beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 1, that knowledge of the truth, that is, knowledge of the gospel, leads to godliness. And I think in Titus, Paul uses godliness and doing uh, what is good um, almost interchangeably. So what does it mean to be godly? It means to do what is good. Uh, What does it mean to do what is good? It means to, to be godly. So when I say be eager to do what is good, you can also take that as be eager to be godly. Now, today's talk is, of course, part of our male and female series. So we're going to think about how Paul's instruction to do what is good uh, might play out slightly differently for men and women. But before we think about the differences, I want us to think about uh, one way uh, in which... uh, one way in which they're actually quite similar. Um, so Paul's instruction to do good is the same for both men and women. It's there in chapter 2, verse 9. So chapter 2, verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, and not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Just a quick note on on slavery here. Uh, Paul is not endorsing slavery. In the first century Greco-Roman world, slavery was extremely common. And because a significant chunk of slaves became Christians, Paul wanted to address them, just as he would have wanted to address any other believers. The fact that that he speaks directly to slaves does not mean that he endorses slavery. It means that he cares about Christians who happen to be slaves. Elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 7, we actually find Paul encouraging slaves to obtain their freedom if they can. So he's not a slavery advocate. He's simply telling slaves who are Christians how they can be godly. Now, how does what Paul says to slaves apply to us? Although, of course, I really hope that your relationship with your boss doesn't feel like a slave-master relationship, I do think that Paul's words here have implications for our workplaces. Remember, we're thinking about how we can be eager to do what is good. So how can we do good in the workplace? Now, there's quite a bit that Paul says here about uh, how we should work. But because we don't have too much time, I just want to briefly point out a few things. 
So what does Paul say here in terms of how we should work? He says we should respect our bosses. That's why we shouldn't talk back to them. And he says we should work in a way that causes our bosses to, to trust us. In short, what does it look like to be godly in your work? I think it works in a way. It's, it's doing your work in such a way that it causes your boss to see you as a safe pair of hands. So I think at work, we should work in a way that makes your boss think that you are dependable. And I think we, we should assume that Paul means we should be de- dependable regardless of whether or not we think our boss deserves us to be. So Paul doesn't say, hey, be dependable unless your boss is really mean. Now, there's, there's a lot more that can be said about work, but um, I think being dependable is the gist of what Paul is getting at. And being dependable is something both men and women can do. It's something both of us should aim for in the workplace. Okay, so we just thought very briefly there about what it looks like to, to do good in the workplace. Now let's look at some of the unique ways in which uh, men and women are called to do good. Have a look at verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. What are these traits uh, that men are called to live out have in common? I think they're traits of someone who is, who is reliable. So you can trust someone who is temperate because you have confidence that they won't fly off the handle, but that they'll keep their composure even under pressure. Now contrast this to the reputation of the unbelieving people uh, of Crete, where Titus was based. What are they known for? So if you look at chapter 1, verse 12, we see the reputation that the Cretans had. It says that, they, um, that they're, they're liars, they're evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And Paul is saying, hey, this is a reputation that Christian men in Crete are not to share. Because it was culturally acceptable for the men in Crete to indulge in such sinful behavior, it might have been tempting for the Christian men to to do the same. But Paul says that the Christians ought to be completely different. Instead of being liars, they ought to be worthy of respect. Instead of being violent brutes, they ought to be temperate. Instead of being gluttonous, They are to be self-controlled. And they are to be sound in the faith. What is that? They are to have a clear grasp of the gospel. And their gospel understanding should lead to a life marked by love for God and neighbor. This is the way of life they should endure in. The temptation to be like the men of this world is... Strong. So Christian men are are to persevere in living a life that is distinct and faith-guided. Now, 
It's interesting that, uh, that Paul gives this list of ways that older men are to live. But to the younger man in verse 6, he just says, be self-controlled. So is, is being self-controlled the, the only thing the younger men are to care about? I don't think so. I think Paul gives, us, gives the older men a longer list because he wants them to lead by example. He wants the younger men to learn from them, just as he wants them to learn from Titus. And as we'll see, just as he wants the younger women to learn from the older women. If you're, if you're an older Christian man, why not seek out ways in which you can model or teach godliness to younger men in the church? Maybe you feel like you can't really contribute that much to, to church. That's not true. A huge way in which you can serve us as the church is by encouraging the younger men to live for Christ and to honor him in their lives. And I really think our younger Christian men need older Christian men who can be role models to them. Some of you may have been very fortunate um, to have had godly fathers play play this role in your own lives. But many men haven't had that privilege. So if you're a bit older, why not serve as a role model in the faith to the younger men? And maybe you're thinking, whoa, 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 look, I'm not perfect. I've got serious flaws. Yeah, join the club. But here's the thing. You, you, don't, you don't need to be perfect. You just need to be a man who acknowledges that you are not, but know someone and trust someone who, who is. When, when the younger men in our church have older godly male role models, it will help them to think through what it, what it looks like to be a godly man at school, at university, in the office, and as a husband and as a father. Men, be eager to do what is good. Older men, please offer to meet up with younger men to disciple them. And younger men, don't be foolish to disregard what you can learn from older men. You can learn from your older brothers as to what it looks like to live faithfully in the waiting room of this world. We live, in a, we live in a society that despises seniority. It's all about listening to what young folks have to say. Let's not follow the world in that. No, there is, there is so much we can learn from older people. The Bible encourages us to learn from them. Okay, so we thought about uh, the men. What about... Obviously, look, there's going to be a lot of crossover. So some of the things I've said um, about men are going to apply to women. And some of the things I'm going to say about women obviously apply to men as well. I need to caveat that because I don't want you to think, oh, that only applies to men or that only applies to women. Okay, so what about women? How can women live a life that does what is good? Have a look at verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. 
Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. What does it look like for a Christian woman to live a godly life? Just as the men were called to be self-controlled, the women are too. If you're a woman, in in what ways can you live a life that embodies self-control? One example Paul gives is in the way you speak or decline to speak of others. So when a friend slanders someone you don't particularly like and it's really tempting to join in, exercising self-control might mean biting your tongue and changing the subject or maybe even walking away. Now, we often learn how to do what is good by picking it up from others, don't we? It's not only by reading the Bible Um, It's sometimes by looking at people. We learn what it looks like to do what is good. We learn what it looks like to be godly. Paul says here in verse 3 that Christian women should teach other women in the church. And and the older women especially, uh, who are perhaps uh, mature in the faith and can really uh, help the younger women to grow in godliness. I want us to notice um, one of the things older women are encouraged to teach the younger women, particularly those who are married. They're they're encouraged to teach them to love their husbands and children. Which I have to admit, I I found slightly odd. I understand women being encouraged to love their husbands, but why also their children? I mean, don't mothers do that naturally? Do they really need to be told to love their children? A friend pointed out to me that although women do, of course, love their children, we live in a society where women are regularly pressured to put other things ahead of their family. Now, what's the biggest thing our society tells women to to prioritize over their family? I think it's probably their careers. Now, of course, there is nothing wrong with a woman who's married and has children having a career. But what about when someone's career starts to take a heavy toll on their family life? What about if it causes their relationship with their spouse to nosedive? What about if it consistently prevents them from spending quality time with their children? If if someone's job or career starts to cause them serious family issues, it might be a good idea to reassess things. It might be a good time to ask, is my family being neglected because of my work? And if that's the case, is, is there anything you could do in order to spend more time with your family? Now, just because Paul 
in this passage says that women are to love their spouses and children. This does not mean that men don't have to do the same. And that they don't need to ask themselves some of the same questions. They may well need to. It's possible that in this letter, Paul is focusing on the women loving their families because that was a particular Cretan issue. So we know from from other letters by Paul that he does also tell men to love their families. So this is something that applies to both men and women. Now, I just want to briefly point out something in verse 4. So, when it says there that women are to be busy at home, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that women are to be full-time housewives and that they cannot, for example, have uh, a paid job in an office? In the Bible, we find examples of successful businesswomen, such as Lydia in Acts chapter 16. And in Proverbs 31, the entrepreneurial woman is celebrated. So so when Paul says that women should be busy at home, he's not saying that their work is to be restricted to the home. He's stressing that they should be busy. The emphasis is on the busy. Now why? Why is he saying that they should be busy? Why is he saying they should keep themselves occupied? Remember what we saw in chapter 1, verse 12? What are are the pagan Cretans like? What do they have, have a reputation for? One thing they had a reputation for was being lazy. So the Christian women are not to be like their pagan counterparts, but rather to be busy and productive. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says that all Christians, not just women, all Christians, men and women, should be careful to, should be careful to avoid living unproductive lives. They should be careful to avoid living unproductive lives. Now, there's one final thing I, I want us to notice about Paul's instruction to women. So he says in verse 5 that women are to be subject to their husbands. Notice that they are to be subject to their husbands and not to men in general. I was recently listening to, I was recently listening to a podcast and um, heard about a church that was very big and successful in, world, in worldly terms, had a lot of members. Um, but in this church, uh, women were told to submit to all the men in the church. Which is insane. And it's, just, and it's not what Paul teaches. He teaches that a woman is to submit to her husband. Now what does submission look like in the Bible? Just to give you a, a brief overview. What does submission look like um, according to the Bible in, in the church and in the home? So in the church, both men and women are to submit to the church elders. So in the church, in this context, both men and women are called to submit to the church elders. And in the home, women submit to their husbands. Why? Because it's following the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam leads and Eve helps. So that's, that's the Bible's blueprint for, 
for submission in the church and in the home. Now, before we move on to our next point, I, I want to highlight something that's very important. Sadly, many men have abused their position of authority, whether in homes as husbands or in churches as elders. And this is tremendously tragic because in God's word we find that husbands are called to sacrificially love their wives and that church elders are to sacrificially serve the church. That's how husbands and elders are called to lead according to the Bible. So if a church leader mistreats you in any way, or if you're married and your husband does, please don't think that you just need to silently accept physical or emotional abuse because you are called to submit. No, raise, raise the issue. Speak to our safeguarding officer. Call the 318 safeguarding helpline if you need to. Submitting doesn't mean having to silently put up with unacceptable behavior. That's not what submitting means. Now, many of us know that, but I just want to clarify that because in the past, I think men have used that, oh, no, you need to submit. I know that's not what it means. Submitting doesn't mean committing abuse. Okay, I think it's really important to, to understand. Right, let's conclude our, our point before moving on to the final one, uh, which will be a lot shorter. Uh, so what have we seen so far? We've seen that we are living in a world that is a waiting room. And we've seen that while we're in this waiting room, we should be eager to do what is good. We should live godly lives. Now, why should we do this? Is it only out of gratitude for, for God's grace to us? Paul says in our passage that how we live our lives has the ability to, has the ability to either put people off Christianity or to draw them to it. So we see the former in, in verse 5. So Paul says in verse 5 that our bad behavior can malign the word of God. And then in, in, chapter, and then in verse 10, Paul says that our good behavior can make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So friends, why are we to be eager to do what is good, to live godly lives? Why should we do that? Because it can make the gospel attractive to onlookers. That's our second point. Because it makes the gospel attractive to onlookers. Many of you uh, know Chris, who, who comes to our church. I don't know how many of you have actually uh, heard his story about, he, about how he came to faith. Chris wasn't brought up in a Christian home. And growing up, uh, he would not have said that he was interested in Christian things. In fact, he would have proudly called himself 
an atheist. But when he was in South America a couple of years ago, he met some Christians there who invited him to spend time with them. And although initially he wasn't interested in becoming a Christian, he did quite enjoy their company. And as he witnessed how they lived their lives, his interest in Christianity began to peak. It was their gospel living that then caused Chris to want to explore their gospel beliefs. And by God's grace, as Chris looked into the Christian faith and started reading the Bible and other Christian books, God in his mercy gave Chris spiritual sight to see and receive Jesus. Friends, Chris is just one example um, of someone who through observing Christians, doing what is good, living godly lives, was drawn to Jesus. The gospel was made attractive to Chris through those South American Christians. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, do we really believe that, that how we live has a huge impact on the unbelievers around us? If we do, then why are we so tempted to blend in with the unbelieving world? Why are we so tempted to behave like it? And why are we so tempted to to act or pretend like we believe what it believes? The unbelieving world thinks or at least behaves as though life on earth is all there is. But as Christians... We don't believe that life on earth is all there is. In fact, we know that it isn't. And we know that because there is one who came back from the dead to show us that there is life beyond the one in this world. Right now, we're just living in a waiting room. Feel free to enjoy life in the waiting room. But let's not act or behave like life in the waiting room is all there is. When we live in a way that shows that we treat life on earth as though we're just sitting in a waiting room, unbelievers will take notice. And maybe they'll ask us why we live differently. And perhaps then we can share the fact and the reason we view this world as a waiting room. And even point them to the one who can take us from it to something infinitely better. By the way, if you're here this this evening and you're not a Christian, um, you can have the life that is available outside of this worldly waiting room. You can have it if you'll trust in Jesus. Eternal life is something God promises to those who will trust in him. So in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, uh, The hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Friends, if you'll trust in Jesus, you can have eternal life. 
God has promised it. And he's not like the Cretans. He doesn't lie. So don't settle for just sitting in the waiting room, reading the newspaper, or scrolling through Facebook. There's so much more beyond this waiting room. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for so often treating this world like it's our final destination, like this is where we belong. It's not. This is just um, a stopover to our final destination, to be with you. Father, we thank you so much that you have promised eternal life to those who trust in your Son. Father, we pray that because of your goodness to us, we pray that we would um, live godly lives knowing that it has the potential to cause unbelievers to want the same, to want Christ. So, Father, we do pray that we would live godly lives in light of your mercy to us and so that others might come to share in this glorious eternal future too. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.